You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, good morning, church. Welcome this fine morning. It's good to be at church. I love being with you. I love worshiping with you. And I'm really excited to jump back into the Word of God and talk about renewal. It's been such a blessing the last couple of weeks to just just have these discussions and conversations about renewal of our hearts, renewal of our culture. And we've come today to talk about renewal of our churches. Uh, And so I'd encourage you to make sure you've got your Bible. Hold it close. We're going to be jumping around a bit, but focusing in Acts chapter 11. One of the things that has been really a blessing to me that as we've been talking about this, that lots of you have come up with ideas and thoughts and all this kind of stuff. We actually want to harness some of that. And so um, can we get the the first uh, slide up on the screen? Oh, it's not there anymore. Um, do Do we have, it's like purple? I don't know might say, that's the one. Look at that. We, we actually want your suggestions. Like as, as God has been speaking through his word to us, if there's anything in your mind, you're like, hey, this might be an avenue where God wants to renew us. Hey, this might be something that we need to move towards as a church. We'd love your suggestions. So there's, a, there's an email there, info at reddoorchurch.com.au. You can also just give us a paper bit. Jonah, where would we put that? That's right. And away you go, right? Because we, we want, we're, we're all in this together. This is not just me and Jono talking about renewal and getting excited. We want everyone all in together, moving towards where God wants us. Um, because what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is just tracing this theme of renewal and revival throughout history and throughout the Bible. So week one, Jono took us through the history of renewal, how God has kept a faithful remnant for himself that has brought renewal and revival to the church, to Israel, and to culture. In week two, we looked at our culture and how our culture has brought in a, this promise that we can progress without the presence of God and how it's leading to fracturing and division all over. In week three, which was last week, we looked at our idols, that if we are to see renewal, out there, we need to see renewal in here, and that involves confession and repentance and a desiring of the presence of the Lord above all else. And today, we come to the church. What happens when renewal in individual lives breaks out amongst a community? What does that look like? And what would it look like for Red Door to experience renewal and revival, to experience the presence of the Lord in such a thick sense that we are, we're just on fire for him. So what we're going to do today is going to look through Acts 11, and I want to cast a bit of a vision for what that could look like, because I think in our minds, we think that we need to be large or powerful or skillful or gifted in order to see revival, and it's just not true. You do not need a large church in order to experience or witness revival. You just need spiritual hunger. You need to search after God. It does not matter about the size. It does not matter about the gifts. It matters, do you want God? I think an incredible uh, reminder of this in a story is the, uh, the story of the Moravian Revival. The Moravians were political and religious refugees who were cast out of the Czech Republic in the 17th century. And they, uh, they, they landed in a place called Hernhut in Germany, which is like Saxony, um, which is on the border of... Um, 
of, of the Czech Republic. And there was all this division. So like, there's this mass movement of people. Um, they, they spread all around, and about 300 of these Moravians settled in Hernhut. And there was this division. There was this fracturing. There was, it wasn't quite working until one day they decided, we're, we're going to have a prayer meeting. That's what we're going to do. We're going to have a prayer meeting, and that's going to help us. And so on August 27, 1727, so a long time ago, 24 men and 24 women covenanted, made a binding promise before God that we're going to spend time in prayer. There's not going to be one hour of the day that, that we're not praying for God. We're not praying for God to move. We're not seeking God's face. That prayer meeting that started on the 27th of August in 1727 finished 100 years later. In a community of 300 people, they started this prayer movement where there was around-the-clock prayer for 100 years. It does not take a large church in order to see revival. It just takes spiritual hunger. The Moravians launched one of the most effective missionary movements the world has ever seen. They sent out of their community of 300, right, as, as more and more gathered and people were saved, they sent more missionaries in their period of time than in the previous couple of centuries combined. Right? They sent people to places. Right? This is in Germany in the 17th century. They sent places as diverse as the Caribbean, North and South America, Africa, the Far East, and the Arctic. Right? Small group of people, hungry for the Lord, revival. It does not take a large church. So I'm going to pray. and I, 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 My prayer is just going to be that as we look through Acts, that we can get that mentality. Are we hungry? Do we want the Lord? Let's see revival break out. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would stoke our hunger, that we would not settle for less of you, that we would not settle for just the crumbs of your presence, but that we would say we want you. We're hungry for you. It does not matter how many of us there are. We want you. We expect you to do great things, God. You can do great things. Move again in our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this story of Acts. And the gospel has started to spread, primarily in Jewish communities, until we come to the church in Antioch. Let me read from verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. There's a couple of interesting things about this story. One, this is the first time that we see a turn of context. So primarily the gospel has been preached to Jewish audiences. This is the first time that it switches to Gentiles, just to the ordinary folk, the Greeks, right? This is not uh, God's people Israel anymore. It's moving out. And the interesting thing is that it almost seems like an accident. Right? This is not a strategic missional decision. The leaders haven't gotten together and prayed and fasted and like, we're going to go to Antioch. Literally what happens is the church is persecuted, people flee, and as they flee, they bring Jesus with them wherever they go, and there's this group of people who flee to Antioch, and so they bring Jesus with them. Right? It, just, it just happens. This group of ordinary people, there's no church leaders seemingly involved, and they go to Antioch. Antioch was 
an immense city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. And in many ways, it's like Melbourne. It was a multicultural melting pot. There were Greeks, there were Indians, there were Chinese, there were Jews, there were Romans. All together in this city, about 500,000 people lived together. Which, you know, in Melbourne standards isn't very big, but back then, immense. Immense. But Antioch was incredibly segregated. Archaeologists have dug up walls that were literally built to keep the, ra- the nations and the races separate from each other. There was so much religious and national polarization that nationalities had to be separated from each other. Greeks lived with Greeks, Indians lived with Indians, Chinese lived with the Chinese, and Jews with the Jews. There was no mixing whatsoever. And into that, God starts doing a new thing with a new city and a new people, but with the same gospel. And I want you to notice a really interesting phrase in verse 21. It just says this, The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them. These are people doing the everyday things of following Jesus, the everyday stuff. Not, not something spectacular, just the everyday things, bringing Jesus with them to their work, they're bringing Jesus in their home, they're talking about him, they're praying, they're fasting, all the kind, the, just the regular Jesus stuff, and then suddenly the, the hand of the Lord comes upon them and something shifts. The multitudes start turning to the Lord. The hand of the Lord is upon them, and there's an intensification that happens. J.D. Greer says it like this. We've got it on the screen. In times of renewal, the Spirit of God does not typically do a new thing. He simply pours out greater power upon the normal things that faithful Christians are already doing. Prayers become more intense. Worship becomes more joyous. Repentance becomes more sorrowful. And the preached word becomes the pierced word. And he does more in a moment than we can accomplish in a lifetime. There is not something irregular happening here. It is the regular, everyday stuff and just an intensification because the hand of the Lord is upon them. And so I want to sort of work through this, this story of Antioch with the hand of the Lord upon them and pick out five different things that we can be praying for, that we can be fasting for, that we can be seeking the Lord in that would signify that renewal and revival has broken out at this church. So here's the first. True renewal brings radical conversion. Can we get the next slide up? True renewal brings radical conversions. It says, says this, The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. You know, this, this, this sort of like brings back terrible flashbacks of maths class. Right? There's so many people that we can't count it, right? and uh, I guess it's just a large number. Right? That's me and math. Right? What's 73 to the power of 9? Uh, it's definitely a large number. Right? It's, it's, uh, we, we can't count it. It's not like uh, one salvation, uh, two salvation, three salvation, four. Uh, I've run out of fingers. I guess it's a large number. There's just so many people who are being saved that they say there's a large number. And so the, the, the church in Jerusalem sends down Barnabas to check it out. Like, something's happening in Antioch. We've got to check it out. Let's send Barnabas. He's a good dude. And what does Barnabas do? There's news about this, reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived, 
he saw the grace of God and he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. When Barnabas came, he was glad and encouraged because he saw the grace of God. This is not just decisions. This is not just people saying, yep, I want to follow Jesus. He saw evidence of transformed lives and transformed hearts. Antioch is not a serious place. Antioch is not like Jerusalem where serious theological discussions were going down all the time. Antioch is, is, a, is a melting pot. Right? It's not a moral place. There was a shrine um, about five miles out of the city in a place called Daphne where there was temple cult prostitution. There was, a, there was an everyday part of life. You, you went to the temple, you slept with a prostitute. That, that was just part of their everyday life. Right? That's the kind of people that are being saved out of this. So what kinds of people? Godless pagans, temple prostitutes, right? The least likely people to be converted. When revival and renewal hits a place, it is the least likely kind of people that get saved. Every so, like, like I've been involved in youth ministry for, for 10 plus years, right? And I, you know, I praise God when there's a kid who's been raised in the church and they've been taught the Bible and they say, I want to follow Jesus and they back it up. Like, I, I praise God. But every so often that, that someone comes to faith that just reminds you that the gospel is true and powerful. It's like, there's no way that guy is ever going to be saved outside of the grace of God, right? It, just, it makes no sense. It's illogical. That's what's happening here. Unlikely people, the evidence of God's grace. This is what it looks like um, when it breaks out. This is a, a story from the, the Hebrides, which is a place in Scotland um, when revival broke out. There's a story here, if we can get it on the screen. It's a couple slides over. Keep going. Here we go. One who came into saving and covenant relationship with Jesus, that is, he got saved, spoke on the following evening to a young man, Suddenly, conviction grips him, and he begins to tremble and tries to shake it off. He goes to the town of Stornoway and enters the public house to get away from this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. That's the pub. And when he enters the pub, he finds three men speaking about their lost and ruined state before the Lord. Next slide. He says, this is no place for a man anxious to shake this off. I will go to a dance. That night, he went to a dance and was not in the hall five minutes when a young woman came up to him and said, mentioning his name, Oh, where would eternity find us if God struck us dead now? Next slide. The sense of God was everywhere. That evening, the young man found the Savior. He could not escape God. When the presence of God is thick in a place, the unlikeliest people come to faith because the presence of God cannot be escaped. There's a young man. He's literally running away from God, and God chases him and breaks down his walls. In renewal, there is no one too far past redemption. What often happens in the church is that we talk about church growth, but actually what we're talking about is transfer growth. It's Christians changing churches to suit their preferences or because something happened, right? We don't have enough Christians in our nation to keep shuffling the deck and calling it growth. Like, there's going to be a point in our lifetime where we're going to have to get on our knees and contend for the unsaved masses who desperately need Jesus. There's going to be a point where we've got to go, we, we can't just keep puffing ourselves up and making ourselves look good. We actually have to go and preach the gospel and trust that God will save the unlikeliest of people. Second thing, 
that happens in the church in Antioch. Uncommon unity and diversity. This is an incredibly multicultural leadership team. This is what it describes the leadership team in Acts chapter 13 on the next slide. It says this, Now in the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you have five different leaders. You have Barnabas, who's from Cyprus. You have Simeon, who is also called Niger, which is the Latin word for black. So he's probably a black African. In church history, Simeon is linked with Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross for Jesus. Right? You have another Gentile named Lucius, who is probably, again, black because he's from Cyrene in North Africa, what's, uh, I think, Libya now. And then you have this guy, Manian, who's raised in the same household as Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, um, Herod the Tetrarch's son, sorry, who was the same man who oversaw the death of Jesus and beheaded John the Baptist. So that's an interesting guy to have on your leadership team. And then you have Saul. First time he stepped out into church leadership. That is an incredibly diverse team. That speaks an incredible word in a city which has literally built walls to keep the races and the nations from each other because of fracturing and division. There are three continents represented, four different nations, incredible amounts of socioeconomic difference. And this is one of the key things that the gospel brings when renewal falls on a place. There is uncommon unity, uncommon division. We live in a society that is constantly at each other's throats. And the way that we try and get around this is using legislation, right? We're going to make you be civil to each other. But the problem is that legislation doesn't affect the human heart. Bitterness, hostility, bigotry are remarkably resilient. And into that steps Jesus. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. We can get that on screen. It's one of the next slides. It's talking about Jesus, this magnificent thing about worship. It says, Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, ooh, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which has better things than the blood of Abel. Now you might look at that and go, that's a super confusing verse. I'm not really sure what's going on here. Um, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus and God being worshipped, but I want to focus on what it says in the end. To the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Well, what on earth is the blood of Abel? It was actually reaching back to Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel. So what's the blood of Abel? It's the blood of murder, of brotherly hostility, of division and fracturing. Because what Jesus says is that I will, instead of I will kill my enemies, instead of I will murder my enemies, he says I will die for them and I will reconcile them to myself. When renewal and revival falls on a place, there is uncommon unity. There is togetherness, there is reconciliation, there is relationships being restored. When renewal comes, it brings the kind of community that are only together because Jesus brought them together. It's the kind of community that you look around and go, I would not be friends with you unless Jesus brought us together. 
We would not be unified unless Jesus brought us together, unless the Spirit is moving, unless the Spirit is bringing us together. Because I, and I know, right? I know enough of you to know that even in this room, there are people who are just sitting in unforgiveness towards each other. Right? They are sitting in bitterness and hatred and frustration and anger and are doing absolutely nothing about it. Right? Renewal brings reconciliation. If we are to experience renewal, we actually need to be reconciled. We need to be praying for reconciliation, for relationships restored. Jesus even says this in John 17 about unity. He says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Our unity is a core characteristic of the world believing in Jesus. And if we are divided, renewal will not come, and people will not believe in him. Uncommon unity and diversity. We need to be praying to be restored to each other. Third thing that renewal brings in the church, extraordinary generosity. Extraordinary generosity. Whenever the hand of the Lord is upon a place, resources are released in order to fund the mission. And you see this all throughout church history, all throughout the New Testament, that disproportionately wealthy people are just given towards funding the mission. It's like, we're all in, have everything. I don't mind, just, I, I, you, you need to have it all. Right? We see this in the New Testament, that when, when, when there's a need, people sell their house. Right? Could you imagine that? There's a need, and we just start selling our houses. Right? All right, let's go. Right? I'm all into this. It says this in Acts 11, 28, uh, 27 to 30. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. There's a vision, there's a prophecy that there's going to be a great famine, there's a need in Jerusalem. And so these new disciples in a new church, in a new place, Jerusalem's still the headquarters of Christianity. It's where all the leaders are. They're like, we're struggling. And this new church says, we've got you. We're going to give according to our need. We are going to be all in. We're going to give until it hurts. We've got you. Tim Keller talks about this phenomenon. Financial promiscuity. When the Spirit of God falls upon a place, there is just extraordinary generosity. Tim Keller says this, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Financially promiscuous. I don't know, have you, I don't know if you've ever met a financially promiscuous person, right? They're just walking around and they can't keep their wallet in their pants, right? Just like, I've, I, I've got you, right? You got a need? I've got you. Would you, do you, want to, would you, would you like my wallet? Like, I just, just, great, awesome, right? Excellent, right? They're just financially promiscuous. They're just, they're just looking for opportunities to give again and again and again and again. Right? There's, there's, I heard this story from a guy, John Tyson, who I listen to all the time. Um, he's phenomenal. But he, he tells this story about when he started out as a pastor, I think really captures the essence of this. 
So he uh, was 23 years old, starting out in ministry, got his first job. His wife's 21. They've just had their first kid. And he starts working for a church as a youth pastor. And um, because he was so young and inexperienced, what they did was split a full-time wage across two different people. So he's receiving a half a wage. And so he and his wife end up in a caravan park. We don't really have that here in Australia. Um, like we go to caravan parks, that's sort of like a holiday. Out, like out in America, not the case so much. Right? So he ends up in this caravan park, and his wife, like, mo- like maybe a month after giving birth, is working in a Starbucks trying to, eat, trying to make ends meet. Just trying to make it work. Oh, we've got to get everything on the table. And one day, one day, a guy comes into the Starbucks, and he must have seen him being commissioned or welcomed at church. And he says, he says to his wife who's in Starbucks, he says, Hey, aren't, aren't, you, aren't you that youth pastor's wife? He said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't, didn't you just have a baby? Yep. So who's, who's got the baby right now? Uh, John's home with him right now. Um, we, we just got to, you know, we're just trying to make ends meet, like we, we, all that kind of stuff. And um, the guy says, okay, um, here's my card. Can you just give me, can you just get, make sure John gives me a call? So, okay, that's a bit weird, but okay, cool. So goes home, gives the card to John. John gives him a call. And the guy says, hey, um, I'm sorry that was a bit weird. Um, I'd, I'd really like to meet with you. Could, could we meet with her a coffee? And so John meets with him for coffee. And the guy starts explaining a bit of his story. He was an entrepreneur. And when he was young, he made a lot of money, but he wrecked his life. Had a young family and had an affair. Really rich, but completely ruined his life. So whenever this guy saw a young Christian couple under financial strain, he just wanted to go around and alleviate it. He was like, I'm, I'm going to just cover you. So he says to John, so how much, how much does your wife make at Starbucks? And John tells him, and he says, okay, I've got this deal for you. I'm going to give you this amount of money every single month so that your wife can remain at home and take care of her baby, which is the cry of her heart, under one, one condition, that you meet with me every single month so we can pray for you in your marriage. Right? Financially promiscuous. This guy saw a need and was like, I've got you, right? I've experienced the bitterness of, of going without, right? I've got you. What would it look like if our church was financially promiscuous? If we just saw a need and we're like, I've got you, right? The church is known for being stingy and for desiring money from everyone. What if we unleashed this momentum, this wave of generosity everywhere we went, where people are like, oh my goodness, the Christians are here. They just give everyone their money. Right? Jimmy just keeps giving me his credit card. Like, what's up with that? Right? Why does he, he just keeps giving me a 20. Right? What if that was our legacy? Right? When the renewal of God comes upon a place, Christians lose their dependence and grasp upon money because it is not their idol anymore. Let's go, it's not that important. We develop a strange detachment from it. Number four. When revival and renewal falls upon a place, when the hand of the Lord is upon a place, kingdom-focused leadership takes hold. I love the story of Barnabas. Can we get the next slide? So Barnabas, uh, many of us would know, he's the encouraging dude in Scripture, right? That's what we know about him. Barnabas is the encourager. He lit- his name literally means son of encouragement. Right? So when Barnabas is going around, he's encouraging everybody. We see that in the story even. But an interesting thing to know that Barnabas isn't part of the original apostles. 
right? He's not listed in the original 12. He's not Paul. He's not seen the risen Lord Jesus. But he's sent to Antioch, and this is his big break, right? So he's sent to Antioch. He's going to be the leader. There's radical conversions. The least likely people are coming out. They're coming to faith. There's uncommon unity and diversity in a city of religious and, and racial fracturing. He's bringing people together. There's, there's people are just giving everyone money, right? It's just breaking out everywhere. He's like, great, I'm here. And what is the first thing he does? We read this, I think, in verse 24. Can we get that on the screen, Aiden? Next, next slide. Here we go. When Barnabas arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Next. The first thing he does is go to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he finds him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The first step of Barnabas' missionary is to say, I'm not the guy. I need help. I'm going to go to Tarsus, which is about 300 kilometers away, which I don't know if you've walked 300 kilometers recently. It's sort of like a long distance. It might take you more than a couple of hours, right? He's like, I need this guy. Saul, who becomes Paul, or, or like all, all that kind of stuff, He's more talented than me. He's gifted. Like, we, we need him, right? I need to step out of the way. This threatens his leadership. It threatens his position of authority, but he does so anyway. When the hand of the Lord is upon a place, kingdom-focused leaders grow up, right? And there's this community and culture that starts to take place where people are just focused on building the kingdom, and they do not care about their own position or their platform. Often it means that the original leaders step out of the way, right? Like, they're just getting out of the spotlight so that the kingdom of God can be fueled by these new leaders. It makes me think of this guy called Eric Nash, who has largely been forgotten to history. He's affectionately known as Bash. He was a, a Christian. We've got a photo of him on the screen. He ran Christian camps in the 40s in England, which is this low spiritual moment um, in English history. The church is just falling apart. Everything seems like it's going to hell. And Nash starts getting these Christian camps together, and he keeps saying this thing, I'm going to pray up a Wesley. I'm going to pray up a John Wesley. John Wesley is this great figure of, um, of English revival. He's a great English preacher. Thousands came to faith. He's going, I'm going to pray up a leader that will shake our nation. So Eric has been largely forgotten to history. We don't talk about him, but we probably know the um, names of many of the people who were under his leadership or under his, who went to his camps. John Stott. Dick Lucas and David Watson, three of the most influential British Christians of the last 100 years. Nicky Gumbel, who started Alpha. Justin Welby, who is the current Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the Anglican Church. Seven different principals of theological colleges and 200 different pastors and priests came to his camps and just released. Right? One man who's just like, I am going to do everything in my power to be kingdom-focused, to build up the kingdom. I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to teach, I'm going to equip, and we're just going to see what God can do here. We barely know his name, and yet the legacy of people who are raised in these environments is profound and vast. Just think about the amount of people who've come to faith in an Alpha course. Started with this guy in England in a spiritual crisis and decline saying, I'm going to pray up a Wesley. I'm going to pray up someone who's going to shake this nation for the gospel. Right? It's incredible. It is incredible. In the revival in the Hebrides, 
which we talked about earlier. It started because two elderly ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith, received a vision from the Lord and started praying. They were 84 and 82 years old, racked with arthritis and blind in both eyes. They could not see, but they could hear from the Lord, and revival broke out. You do not need to be gifted. You do not need to be skilled. You just need to be hungry. What we see again and again and again is unlikely people. God taps on the shoulder and brings them out. People who know their own weakness, who don't rely on their skills and gifts, but go, I'm just, I'm just sold out for God. I'm hungry for God. I want Him. I need Him. I'm going to rely on Him. And God uses them. Unlikely people. You don't need to be great or profound in order to be used by God. You just need to be hungry. The last thing, the fifth thing, when true revival breaks out, when, when renewal takes hold of a church, we receive a new cultural identity. Can we get, get the next, next slide? New cultural identities. In Antioch, Christians for the first time are called Christians. Prior to this, this is actually a very strange thing to call themselves. So Christians don't call themselves Christians. Um, they actually call themselves followers of the way or saints or disciples. Um, the actual word Christians only used, I think, two other times in the New Testament. Right? It's not a common distinction. It's actually saying that the culture starts calling them because they notice that something is different about this group. Something different is, a, is just happening in Antioch with this group. We've heard of Jesus. We've heard of the Christians. But this group is a little bit different. They just talk so much like Jesus and they look so much like Jesus that we, I guess we better call them little Jesuses, right? Little Christians. That's literally what little Christ. That's what it means. Something is happening in Antioch, right? They didn't call it themselves. It's something observed. The words matter. The words that people use to describe us matter. Because it speaks to a couple of things. When I think of what's happening in Antioch, I think of proximity and difference. There must have been an incredible closeness for the culture in Antioch that they can not only see how they speak, but see how they live. They're living face to face with these Christians every day and going, there must be something going on here that I can't quite explain. But even in the midst of this closeness, there is a difference about them that is, has not been corrupted. Right? In the world, but not of the world. We struggle with this all the time, this tension. Many of us are so in the world that we just look like the world. And so many of us are so different to the world that we actually can't relate to the world at all and bring the gospel in. In, but not of. The culture in Antioch had a high regard for the name of Jesus because they saw and they tasted what Christians look like and it tasted good. We, we have a lot of problems with how culture sees us as Christians and often we can be quite defensive about it. I actually think that a lot of it is our own problem. Right? We have been tasted and seen and we've been tasted as bitter. Right? When revival and renewal brings upon a place, the culture comes in close contact with Christians and say, I want more of that. I want more of the kingdom of God. Whatever is going on in your life, I need it. There is a peace, there is a security, there is an assurance, there is a joy, there is a hope. There is something going on that I need that I don't have in me. Leslie Newbigin says it like this. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Do you live a life that is so strange and different that people go, there's something going on here that I can't quite explain. Can you explain it for me? What's, what's going on in our lives? Christians must beat to the sound of a different drum. 
if your life can be explained without Jesus, what's happening? Our lives must be so strange and awkward that unless you know Jesus, it won't make sense. That's what's happening in Antioch. They're so filled with Jesus, so filled with the presence of the Lord, so filled with the Spirit that there can be no other explanation that Jesus has done something profound and definite in history here. I guess they're like Jesus, and we, we sort of like him. This, this is what renewal looks like. Radical conversion, uncommon unity and diversity, extraordinary generosity, kingdom-focused leadership, and new identities. The culture sees us differently. This is what we should be praying for. This is what we should be fasting for. In Melbourne, about 100 years ago, there was a revival that broke out. 250,000 people heard the gospel when the, 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 um, the population of Victoria alone was a million. So a quarter of the population heard the gospel. Thousands upon thousands came to faith. I look at that and I just happened a hundred years ago. Could something happen like that? I go, of course it can. Of course it can. If God's people will humble themselves and pray and fast and call out for Him and just be, just be, just desire His presence above all other things. It might not come in our lifetime. It might not come next week. But God will move again in our midst like he has. And I was praying, um, we were praying as a team before church starts. We just, we pray and we're like, I just felt God say to me in that moment, this word, contend. It would be really, really easy for us to hear this and go home and nothing change. Renewal's great, revival's good, Yep, that sounds great, but nothing's changed. No prayer, no fasting, no earnest desire, no repentance, no confession. I just felt God say to me in that moment, contend. So here's what I want to do. I want us to break out into smaller groups and just pray for the renewal of our church. Right? That might be strange and confronting for you. That's okay. Right? I trust that the Spirit of God will give you a spirit not of fear, but of joy and of hope. We need to contend for our church. We'd not, we, we need to not leave this moment until we've prayed and asked God to fill us and stretch us and make us desire Him more and more and more. I want to do this now, and I also want to have a space after church. But if you feel God's just saying, hey, we need to sit here, we're just going to come down the front and we're just going to continue praying. All right? So that's what we're going to do right now. I want us to get into small groups, twos, threes, fours, just pray for the renewal of our church, pray for the renewal of our culture, pray for ourselves, that God will renew us. Let's go.